We all blame the driver, but sometimes the problem is us. What I mean, I'll use the analogy of mass shootings. It seems we all have an opinion about that. We can all blame the shooter, but how did the gun get in the person's hands? The crime scene starts so much earlier than when the shots are fired. How did they get the gun? Did they legally get the gun? Did they need mental health services? What signs were missed? And so on and so forth. But with a DUI crash, we kind of turn the other way if we aren't directly affected. We get angry at the driver because, using the shooter analogy, it was her, in this case, who fired the deadly shot, if you will. It was Shelley who drove drunk and killed innocent people. But the story is so much more complicated than that. The end is what we remember forever. The lives lost in fill-in-the-blank tragedy. But what if the narrative could change? I mean really change. And instead of blame, there was hope, help, education, and boundaries at every intersection. If there was a mentor instead of a co-conspirator in that place of hurt. If that minister gave words of wisdom instead of sitting silently or laughing judgingly. If just one person had been a better friend and held the keys, a better cop and held you accountable, a better bartender and cut you off, a better human. There's blame to go around, sure, but it serves no purpose and it gets us what we've always gotten. Looking forward, we must also look in the mirror. You are listening to episode three of Telling Lives season two, Alcohol, Intoxicants, Accidents in America. I am your host, Elizabeth Clark. Friday night crab legs were calling my husband's name. So we set out for Marksville, Louisiana, a town about a 30 minute drive from our home in Alexandria, to an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet. This is a relatively rural area, so we took State Highway 1, a two-lane highway that is pretty dark in most places. Tom was driving, and about halfway there, we came up behind a car swerving erratically, over the line to the left, then back, over the shoulder to the right, over and over. The car went further and further out of their lane. Tom asked me to call 911, but I was hesitant to call. Should I mind my own business? Maybe the driver was just tired. But the swerving became impossible to ignore when the car began driving much of the time completely in the wrong lane. 911, what's your emergency? The dispatcher said. I told her where we were and what was going on. She asked me to stay on the phone and pace the car until the deputies arrived in the correct location. She took the call very seriously, asking for signage and road markers to detect exactly where we were. Within just a few minutes, the officer responded, I told the dispatcher, and we went on our way. I think about that driver occasionally and wonder what might have happened had we not called that night. I have thought a lot more about that night while doing this podcast. I know one thing, I won't ever hesitate to make that call again. The victims of the fatal crime-
deadly crash that turned a Sebring family The truck driver was arraigned this afternoon after police say he If just one person had done their job or made a better choice, the stories that you will hear this season might have had a different ending. And a young woman may have had Thanksgiving dinner with her family. A father might have walked his daughter down the aisle. A young woman would have married her sweetheart. A father would have met his granddaughter. And three friends would have graduated college together. Those stories will be later this season. For now, I want to fill you in on the events, the years, and the bad decisions that led to the horrific crash that killed Jada Bright, Evans Vincent, and Shelley Rose on Thanksgiving 2018. Every person who was involved and like didn't do what they were supposed to do to like think about Jada every single night, like I have to think about her not being here. And that's just that, you know, from... It's just because it's just like if one person would have did one thing right, mm -hmm. just one thing right. She had a whole future that was just robbed from her. The backstory before the deadly Thanksgiving crash that took the lives of Jada and Evans is going to upset you even more because it shows just how important the decisions we all make affect the end result. In this case, lives. This is the story of Shelley Rose and the horror she wrought. Let's start at the end, because, as you will see, it wasn't just Shelley who wrote the conclusion to this horror. Nope, she had a lot of help on this journey by a lot of folks. Some who, in my opinion, should be held accountable, not held in high esteem for the positions they hold. And it seems, at least according to what I've been able to find through interviews and newspaper stories, at least one officer involved will be seeing the inside of a jail cell, if she isn't already. You see, dirty deeds eventually do catch up with you. And if you don't pay for one, odds are you will eventually get caught or someone will roll on you to save their own hide for something else. The truth will always come to light, either in this life or the next. We will all eventually pay for the choices that we make. Todd Douglas was the tow truck driver who got the call that day at 1045 from law enforcement requesting his services to clear the interstate from the massive carnage and make way for traffic to continue. Remember, this was Thanksgiving Day, the busiest travel weekend of the year, and the traffic was already backing up for miles by the time he got to the scene. Hundreds of passenger vehicles with antsy kids and impatient adults headed to get-togethers were now running late. Truckers delivering those last-minute packages to retailers prepping for Black Friday just a few hours away were now stuck. And time and gas, that's money out of their pockets. The folks stuck in the traffic jam, totally unaware of what had just transpired and what they and their families had been spared. But for Todd, who had been in the business for 22 years, and was just finishing up another accident cleanup, he expected this call to be business as usual. Todd covers the 800 square miles of Pearl River County, Mississippi. Uh, and I know as of 22 years, that was the 
that was one of the two worst accidents that I've been on. So what do you do? What do you have to do? What's your responsibility when you go to the scene of one of these? uh, Clean, pretty much clean the whole scene up. Oh, wow. uh, Vehicles, anything to do with the vehicles, you know, we we pick up and uh, pretty much get the road back up so traffic come through. That's basic tow truck. Stuff you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, we was out there from this. I think I got that call at like ten forty-five in the morning, and uh, I want to say I got back home right about three o'clock. We had to get a U-Haul trailer to get motors and engines and stuff out the median. Uh, there was two two engines that come out of the vehicles, and one of them was the van that caused the accident, and then the other one was out of Jada. Jada's car, the one that I towed, and uh, we had we had a U-Haul trailer that was loaded with car parts that we had to haul back in. So when you get there, there's still there's are the the bodies are still there when you get there. Sometimes they are, and and on this one they were. Todd actually kept what was left of Jada's car after he towed it that day to use in DUI advocacy programs at Slidell, Louisiana High School and Pearl River Central High School in Mississippi. You may have seen one of these exhibits in high school before to get young drivers to see for themselves the end result of drinking and driving. It was it was used in, in pretty much when the... Uh, because I went to the ones at PRC now. In Slidell, we just delivered the car. They did their give, then we picked the car up. But in the ones in PRC, I was actually, they was making it look like a real scene uh, where the helicopter lands, the highway patrol comes in, the highway patrol does his thing, he calls for the record. Um, I was the record that come in, you know, and so we, it's basically done like a, uh, like a real scene, like just like it is on side of the road. Mm-hmm. There's been by the time we leave, I knew the person with the PRC because um, that was the only one that I was actually I would be there mm-hmm. while I was putting it on for the kids. But before we would leave, before it was over, the kids were crying like yeah. Like you hit them, you know what I mean? Because right. they're seeing their friends laid out there. They got their friends laid out by the car, uh, and you know the coroner comes up and he pronounces them dead on scene and covers them up with a sheet. So the kids are seeing all this. Right. It's really, it's really. I mean, I guess if you hadn't ever, and they put it on so close to, to the a real accident scene that it's unreal because I've been. I was there watching them do that. And then also, obviously, I'm on real scenes. You know what I mean? Right. So, they, I mean, they do it. It's down to everything. Just like they call the corner, the corner comes rolling in and he does his thing. Todd actually became involved in DUI prevention because of a close personal loss more than 20 years ago. His sister, Brandy, was killed in a drunk driving crash along with her fiance. Well, actually, I got into this uh, 
I got under this probably, well, I got in in October of 2000. Of course, I was in this before my sister got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been into the body work and then in the cars, period, you know. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that was October in the business in December of the same year, which was two months later, uh, my sister got killed. Fatality that I ever went to. Now, I didn't actually tow her car. They, they wanted to tow it, and of course, you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't want the vehicle really sitting at my yard, and you know what I'm saying. Right. And I to see it and stuff like that. So we. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just the one vehicle accident, but they were drinking and even the driver was drinking <clears throat> and run off the road and it killed her and him, which was her fiance, uh, killed both of them. And there was a third one in the car. He made it, but he basically crippled, you know. That day... A lot of the pain of losing Brandy 20 years prior was on his mind, and he had several hours to think about it. He didn't leave the scene of Jada's crash until 3 p.m. with a loaded U-Haul trailer from all the wreckage. Four hours. Many traffic crashes only take minutes to clean. Still, even though he was exhausted from this one, he made sure, as much as he was in control of, that this nightmare would make a difference in as many teenagers' lives as possible? What if Brandy had been exposed to a real-life accident scene when she was a teenager? What if Shelly Rose had? Marsha Landry, the longtime family friend, who was like a second mom to Shelly at many times throughout her life, said Shelly struggled with mental health issues her entire life. Marsha's daughter, Melissa, and Shelly had met as little nine-year-old girls in Meridian, Mississippi, and had been the best of friends ever since. Remember from episode two, it was Marcia's home in Lake Charles that Shelly had been living in for several months prior to the crash. And Marcia had been expecting Shelly to return home for days following a quick trip to North Carolina, but Shelly had started drinking again. A repeated narrative throughout her life, and Marcia... Upon finding out, just minutes before the crash, when an intoxicated Shelly finally called her, told her no more. But let's go back. Marcia said Shelly was a rebel from a very early age. She came from a good family, but Shelly was the black sheep. She had attempted suicide twice by the ninth grade, Marcia said, and her parents had sent her to rehab, and she would be okay for a while, until she wasn't again and again she um she led a privilege pretty privilege growing up now i have to admit her parents tried everything she was sober for over a year shelly had a void in her life and she continued to try to fill it in incredibly detrimental ways over the years some of the ways according to marcia were rather unseemly, if not illegal. But Shelley is no longer here to speak for herself, and I do not wish to bring any further harm to her son. Suffice to say, 
Shelley was a tortured soul who never found lasting help or peace for her myriad of problems. This is in no way an excuse for what she did, but it does help explain it a bit. Shelley grew up, attended her hometown university, the University of Southern Mississippi, and was in a sorority. Shelley had a degree from Southern, and she was a beautiful girl. But she was never in control of her drinking for long. Shelley married a chef and moved to California. She gave birth to a son. I actually tracked her first husband down, but he did not want to go on record. The marriage ended a long time ago, and he has raised their son and continued a relationship with Shelley's parents for his son to know his maternal grandparents. He does not want him hurt by opening up old wounds. And as a parent, I totally respect his decision. Marcia told me Shelley's first husband was a really good man, but he simply couldn't stay in a relationship with an out-of-control alcoholic. After they had a child, he had to focus on what was best for their son. I have to say, from talking to him for about 45 minutes, I have to agree. And a father who will continue to make sure his son spends time with his maternal grandparents, his own ex-in-laws. That's pretty impressive in my book. So I'm respecting their privacy. I will say, though, that he and Shelley's son had been visiting her family on that Thanksgiving weekend in 2018. It's a strange coincidence. He got sole custody of the child because of Shelley's drinking. She remarried a second time to a guy that she didn't really love, but he gave her a three-carat diamond ring. So, you see what I'm getting at is, is it was everything in her life was more materialistic. The oddest thing about this second union wasn't that, at least according to Marsha, it wasn't based on love. It's that he didn't drink, like not at all. Perhaps he thought he could change her, I don't know, and I wasn't able to interview him, so this is just conjecture. Suffice to say, Shelley's second marriage did not end well either. She, when she and her second husband were splitting up, he was in South Carolina. He had thrown her out of the house a couple of times when she was drunk. He did not drink at all. But Shelley could control her drinking. She could go weeks without a drink. Um, she came to live with us because he had thrown her out of the house. This is when Marcia says Shelly called her and asked if she would let her move in. So she moved in here <coughs> with my husband and I and Melissa. And the two of them shared a bedroom. Marcia told her the rules of the house and she stayed sober for a long time, according to Marcia. Though... Long time is an odd choice of words, since this was already the summer of 2018, and Thanksgiving was just five months later. We had to take her to the hospital for um, the alcoholism. She stayed sober for a long time, and then one day we found five empty bottles underneath the mattress. And I told her, I said, Shelly, you cannot drink in the house. You cannot drink here at all. Marsha urged her to go into an inpatient rehab program, but Shelley refused. She was adamant. She would not even be evaluated. She could stop drinking on her own. This, despite the fact that in the two years previously, Shelley was arrested and charged with at least three DUIs in Mississippi alone. December 4th, 
2016, charged with DUI in Meridian. She was never booked into the county jail and was released from city police holding. October 8, 2017, charged with DUI in Meridian. She was never booked into the county jail and was released from city police holding. November 12, 2017, charged with DUI in Meridian. She was never booked into the county jail and was released from city police holding. By November 2018, Shelley assured Marsha she was sober and was ready to go back to South Carolina and get the rest of her things from her estranged husband's home and that she would be back in Lake Charles before Thanksgiving. Marsha told Shelley to leave her dog and they argued a bit over that. Shelley's dog had previously been put in a shelter following Shelley's arrest earlier in the year in Florida for a DUI. Considering how this story ends, you know how lucky that dog is. He still lives with Marsha today. So Shelly bought a plane ticket and flew to South Carolina. She rented a car over there, a van to come back, and she had her stuff loaded in it. And on the way back, she kind of scratched up the car at a service station from drinking. She was drinking and driving. Now, I had told her, Shelly, call me when you get through Atlanta. And she called me and she was sober. But that night, she went out and got her a bottle. She gets to Meridian and she gets arrested for DUI. They put her in jail. And she spends the night in jail. Then the next day, she goes about, well, Ellisville. Do you know how far Meridian is from Ellisville? Not very far at all. And she was drunk in Ellisville, and they arrested her. So let me back up a bit before Ellisville. Let's talk about Meridian for a minute. The distance from Atlanta to Meridian, Mississippi, is about 300 miles. Shelley was driving a Dodge Caravan filled to the brim with her life possessions, probably lonely and pondering the next chapter of her life. Her second marriage is over. She is staring down 50 years old. She was probably jonesing for something to take the edge off. And somewhere between Atlanta and Meridian, Shelley starts drinking. On November 19th, Lauderdale County Sheriff's Department receives a call from a person at a gas station. Meridian is in Lauderdale County. Deputies respond to the Travel Centers of America truck stop and witnesses tell the officers Shelley has run them off the road and then struck a pole. She appears intoxicated, so the deputies take her to the Lauderdale County Detention Center as she is booked at 4.24 p.m. and charged with DUI-4. This information is from the lawsuit filed on behalf of Jada and its public record. But did you hear me? DUI-4. Remember, she had only had her license back for about a month from losing it for a year for the last DUI conviction. Records show she was released from custody the same day at 10.23 p.m. The keys to her rented minivan were signed out to Tommy Fitzgerald, a bartender friend of Shelley's. I've exchanged several messages with Tommy asking to interview her for this podcast, and she initially agreed, but canceled, saying she was busy, and she may be. 
I also sent her a list of questions and asked if she could respond on her own time, and I have yet to hear back from her. The only thing she sent me was a message saying Shelly was a good person. So Tommy gave Shelly back the keys. My biggest questions here are these. First, Mississippi law. I'm not really understanding why the law doesn't require a sobriety test before release of someone who's been charged with a DUI or mandatory 24-48 hours jail time for second, third, or fourth offense. At the very least, 48 hours in jail would have sobered Shelly up. And secondly, upon being notified that a car belonging to your company has been damaged in an accident in which a DUI arrest and charge was made, why in the heck did the Alamo car rental in West Columbia, South Carolina, allow Shelly to get the van out of impound and continue driving? Perhaps a better question, how did a woman who had only recently gotten her license reinstated even rent a vehicle in the first place? Jennifer, Jada's sister-in-law, wondered the same thing and has done extensive research, which she provided to me for this podcast. When I think about Shelly, the more I know about her, I really f- I feel really bad for her because I feel like she was like on a rampage screaming for help and no one was listening. The, the police weren't listening. Like she, she needed help. She needed help. When, so she, when she got arrested in Meridian, so she, um, the police called, cause she was in a rental car, right? So they called Alamo or Enterprise, I guess they're the same company. And they tell them that she's been arrested for a full PWI. She does, she's wrecked it. Y'all need to come pick the car up. So they decide that they don't want to come pick the car up. So then the police officers hand her keys over to her friend that came up there. Um, and I don't, I'm just, the name on the thing that I saw was Lonnie Fitzgerald, right? So me, just having to know all the facts, I go look up Lonnie Fitzgerald and I see that her and Shelly are friends and looks like she works in a bar. And I'm like, I don't know if any of this is, like, if that's really the same Lonnie Fitzgerald, but I'm thinking, so do we give the bartender the keys? Like, I don't understand all of this. So then, as some, something happened then where she gets her keys back and she starts driving. If you're wondering if someone rented it for her, nope. I've seen the contract and Shelly's initials are on the forms. So Shelly leaves Meridian and drives the 65 or so miles to Ellisville. It's all interstate, I-59 South, and generally takes about an hour. So if she had driven straight to Ellisville, she would have arrived around midnight. November 21st, allowing for time to stop at a gas station or to use the restroom. It's not clear if Shelly stopped somewhere that night or slept in her car, but it's after 9 a.m. when Ellisville Police Department receives a call about a suspicious woman trying to break into cars at a gas station. Captain Wayne McLemore responds, and Shelly is taken to the Jones County Jail a little before 10 a.m. They... They, he said, and the reporter said that he could tell that she had been drinking, um, and he he saw some like, you know, Mike's hard lemonade in the car or whatever, but um, but now that I noticed she was on medicine, so she may have had a lot, you know, so he decided to give her a ticket, a arrest her for public intoxication. 
Oh, and the police reported was saying how she was telling them that she had just got arrested and let out. And she couldn't understand why she was, she, she was trying to say she was still drunk from the day before, basically. So why is she getting arrested again when she was already arrested for being drunk? And so, and this is, this, so this is the most frustrating part to me because they get there and then we get all this video of what happened, right? And in this video, like they're making fun of the fact, I guess she must smell really bad. So they're making fun of her because she smells and, you know, and this officer's like, and it's so crazy to see her. Like, you know, like she's like the bad guy and I can see her. But then like, she looks so pathetic. Like she's like very skinny. She's slurring. She's just, you know, and they're, and they're like, the police think it's funny. And then that breaks my heart. Yeah, and then I'm watching it on this video, and it's just like I can send you those videos too, because I'm just like, this is crazy. And then one officer is like, well, you know, we could go ahead and arrest her for a 50 DWI because you know what's pleasant intoxication. And our other officers like, I'm not doing all that paperwork because when I seen that, I was just like, my heart just broke in half. I've seen the video footage inside the police station. It's unbelievable. Remember from the last episode. This is when Danita Futrell meets Shelly, when they spend a few hours as cellmates. And Shelly talks, and begs, and bargains. She's hell-bent on getting out, despite her obvious intoxication. And she told the jailer, um, if I can get out, I'll give anybody $1,000. And it wasn't but about 15 or 20 minutes later, the jailer's coming back to get her and letting her go back up to the front. So everybody was kind of like, I can't believe that she just got to get out again. You know, that's crazy. We were kind of a little miffed about it, like what made her so special, you know. This goes on repeatedly for hours, until Danita says the third or fourth time she was released to make a phone call to find someone to bond her out, she never came back. Shelley was released from jail about 11 p.m. Thanksgiving Eve, taken to the Ellisville Police Department and released on bond. How she even got a bond amount on the evening of Thanksgiving, much less got an Ellisville police officer to drive her to the tow yard to retrieve her rented vehicle, which she had already crashed and was now overdue to be returned in South Carolina. This, all of this, is why Jennifer made the comment, if just one person had done their job, just one, then three people would still be alive. As for Danita, who was still in lockup for what she told me was retribution for not narking on a local drug dealer, she spent Thanksgiving inside a cell. Then about, I don't know, maybe later on that afternoon, I, can't, I, don't, I wouldn't guess to say probably around supper time, one of the ladies that's the guard come back and said, y'all know that lady that left here last night, Shelly? And we all were like, yeah, we don't know how she kept going up to the front so many times. That was crazy. And then they told us what had happened. And we were just like, oh, my God. You know, And but that we were kind of upset with the guard because no matter what, Shelly shouldn't have been let out because she couldn't even stand up. I mean, she was like, when I say bouncing off the walls, I don't mean like energized. I mean like bouncing off the walls and she'd walk to this side and she'd kind of stagger and then she'd sit down for a second and then she'd get back up and then she'd stagger and 
you know it was not somebody that you want behind a wheel. And I don't think it was just alcohol, though. I think it was something else. Because she was slurring her words like an alcohol would, but I think she was acting more like a Xanax kind of kind of zombie stage. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying, you know? Right. Like, you can tell the difference between alcohol and pills. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't acting like an alcohol. Now, you could smell the alcohol. I'm not saying that she wasn't drinking. Right. Because you could smell the alcohol across the room. Because we actually were joking. I'm like, you need to brush your teeth because you're going to get all of us drunk. You know, your breath is that bad. Danita told me her own brother was killed in a car crash at 18. So her heart just broke when she was told about Jada. And she knew she had to reach out to tell the family what had gone on that night inside the jail. And I reached out to Jada's family mm-hmm. to, to say, listen, this wasn't right. Um, I don't know what happened, but the whole concept of that night wasn't right. Danita was in lockup for 30 days, presumably on a bad check charge, for which she says she was extradited from Tennessee though she says it was really small-town justice, and she was just being held for information. She was a little scared to talk, but her conscience wouldn't let her be silent. And if it was my family member, I wouldn't want somebody to back down. And I'm going to tell you something. Jones County, you can ask anybody that knows anything about Jones County. It is a crooked, crooked, crooked case. The only reason that I went back to jail on those um, bad check charges is because I would not tell them information that they wanted to know about a, an old black guy up the hill that was selling people. That's the only reason I went back to jail. Danita has moved out of state, but her ties to this rural Mississippi County run deep, and she knows dirt on all of them. Some of the information she gave me She asked me to keep off the record, and I have, mainly because much of it is about other cases, some of which are currently under investigation. Just Google this area. You will find more than you imagined. As for this podcast episode, my focus is on this Thanksgiving Day 2018 crash, and I 100% believe law enforcement is partially responsible for the lives lost that day. You released an intoxicated woman trying to break into vehicles in the town you were sworn to protect, who had just a day before gotten her fourth DUI in a neighboring jurisdiction, all because you didn't want to do the paperwork on a fifth DUI because it was a holiday weekend? Seriously? On top of that, you made fun of her. There was nothing funny. She was screaming at the top of her lungs for help, screaming while you laughed. And I'm sure you weren't laughing by Thanksgiving dinner. Join me next time for episode four. We will explore the history of alcohol in American culture and a little bit about what intoxicated even means as we look at how alcohol breaks down in the body. Special thanks to Louisiana Christian University for partial funding for this project. Proverbs 21:21. 21, 21.